May the words of my heart and the meditations of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, O Lord my God and my Redeemer. Amen. The title of today's sermon is connected to our classes that we're continuing to do here, and uh, it's called Growing in Our Relationships, with the subtitle of God's Sight and Suffering Well. I'd like us also to kind of see my comments through the lens of one of the songs that we just sang, There is Hope in Your Name. Morning turns to songs of praise, our God saves. Yea, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life, and we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. These verses from Psalm 23 are some of the most famous verses in all of the Bible. It is almost a direct parallel to John 16:33 that says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This biblical principle is at the heart of God's sight. Knowing that he is with us is a, and is a guiding light in troubled times, even when we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death or in the midst of our enemies. It's not surprising that Psalm 23 is often read at, fu- at funerals give us courage to give us hope in our troubles and hope in our despair. This concept is what John Paul II referred to as salvific suffering or suffering, suffering that saves. The truth is that even when we suffer, and maybe even more so in our suffering, God's promises abide. So what do we mean by suffering well? As far as I can tell, uh, this is a fairly contemporary term. But as we shall see, it's a very biblical concept. Psychologist Dr. Todd Hall says, there's a common myth about suffering that we often believe, even if we wouldn't say it out loud, and that is, suffering is something to be purged, sidestepped, ignored as much as possible, or surgically removed from our lives. The best we can do is simply cope. This myth causes us to miss a very important question, and that is, how do we suffer well? He suggests that first we find a safe relationship to process suffering. Of course, we know our primary relationship for processing is Jesus. Approach and express emotions, and we do that with prayer, with brothers and sisters, within the context of community. He says to process the emotions of suffering all the way through. He says quick fixes tend not to help. It says, reflect on and reorder your priorities. In other words, reassess. When we go through this suffering, it gives us a chance to reassess. And use your experiences of suffering to help others. Pay it forward. These experiences, uh, and I've noticed now that I'm quite a bit older, these experiences are very important for my children and folks who have not experienced life to the full. Sometimes we feel like this suffering is pointless and meaningless. We become victims and suddenly we're just kind of crushed under something we don't understand and we don't know how it happened. As we mature, and I'm looking at some of the mature people in our congregation, we learn that a lot of times this suffering does have a point. 
Today's readings are examples of the difference between God's sight and depending on our own cognitive processes to resolve life's challenges. They are also a way of pointing to the truth of how suffering, when negotiated properly, can benefit in a profound way. In the Old Testament reading of Joseph, we see jealousy, strife, envy, ambition, and even thoughts of murder. But we also see in the epistle God's ability to see us in spite of our blindness. We cannot and should not run from, the ch from ch our challenges, but God's sight is the key to suffering well. On the other hand, using our pain and suffering to leverage our power or seek vindication, promote justification, are slippery slopes that skew our relationships. This manipulative immaturity can turn relationships into nothing more than transactional alliances that dismiss the beauty of God, that the beauty of, of, that God has put in all of us, and the mutual support that we are meant to live in. The Gospel and the Old Testament readings point out how this maturity or lack of it can lead to problems of unimaginable consequences. In our Gospel, for example, Jesus puts an immediate end to the ambition and the potential for favoritism and jealousy right in the moment. He does not pull Bartholomew aside and say to him in secret, what jerks? Did you hear what they asked me? Have they even been listening? What is wrong with them? This is classic triangling, a psychological term for relieving anxiety by dumping it on an unassociated third party. Triangling can even be more destructive when those two are brought together to bear on the third person rather than a simple face-to-face. -face. Again, scripture has something to say about this. If your brother sins against you or you have trouble with him, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. This is exactly what Jesus does. He immediately reframes what it means to follow him. He says it means following him means being a servant, not getting a place of glory. After a momentary irritation by the other ten, Jesus then follows this up with a teaching on servanthood and refocuses his attention on his entry into Jerusalem and his journey to the cross. The situation is handled, and it no longer has any power to disrupt the mission. Israel, Joseph's father, on the other hand, shows outright favoritism to Joseph. He seems to keep things, sort of keep things to himself, as if he thinks that doing nothing will allow the problem to fix itself. What actually happens is Israel ends up adding gasoline on an already bad situation. Israel clearly lacks the God sight or the maturity necessary to keep Joseph, a child favored by God, out of the line of fire. Let's look at Joseph for a moment. Why is Joseph so important? Uh, I can say that in, in studying this, I, I learned something very interesting. There's, Moses says more about Joseph than any other of the characters in the Old Testament. A striking fact, uh, given the significance of Genesis's other main character, Adam, Noah, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We know these people very, very well. But yet there is much more said about Jacob. This prominence is even more striking considering the relatively few references to Joseph in the New Testament. Psalm 105 and Hebrews 11 are two places that note Joseph. And I believe it is significant that they both focus on the trustworthiness of the promise of God and not on Joseph's great efforts. Why is this significant? because suffering well is not about our flesh being tested. This is often how we misread Job, by the way. In reality, it is God, God's promise being tested by the enemy. The promise will come to pass because it is not a contest. 
God is not contesting with anything or anybody, not even the devil, to get his will done. The enemy is fighting and conniving, but God is not. To see God as contending with evil uh, for you or for your well-being is a distortion, and this distortion helps us to miss God's real purpose. We are simply to wait by pursuing our path and his call to us in faith that the promise is true even when we do not see it. Not waiting passively, but an active participant in making it come to pass. Scripture says we are co-laborers and heirs to this promise. Although Paul makes a slight qualification, the rest of the verse says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There's the apostle's answer to the position of glory. Suffering well is suffering with Jesus and suffering for the mission. God's sovereignty figures prominently in the Joseph story because God wants us to see that how even in impossible situations, he keeps his promises. One writer says, Joseph highlights how God's providence secures God's promises. It also shows how resting on the promises and not on what we see is critical to our callings. Let's say that again. This reading also shows how resting on the promises and not on what we see is critical to each of our callings. Yes, you and I all have callings that are unique. Some of these callings are situational. Some of them are tied to our God-inspired vocation. The writer goes on to say, though Joseph, the one rejected, the threats through, I'm sorry, through Joseph, the one rejected, the threats are resolved. Genesis records a series of recurring themes that endanger the survival of this covenant line, this very important line that, that goes back to the promise of Abraham. We see family division, violence reminiscent of Cain and Abel, and we also see that global famine also endangers the covenant line, but God is faithful, and he uses Joseph to resolve these problems, to resolve these issues and, and, and reverse the curse. Instead of exchanging revenge, Joseph eventually reconciles with his brothers by extending forgiveness. Joseph ends up settling his family in Goshen and shielding them from uh, foreign influences and also preserving that line while the famine goes on in Egypt. Through Joseph, God is reversing the curse, unraveling violence through forgiveness, righteousness, unrighteousness through righteousness, and hunger through wisdom. Joseph, on two occasions at least, could have simply given up. His sale into sla slavery and his imprisonment for the alleged affair with Potiphar put him in situations that it would be easy to say, okay, I give up. I hear what you say, but it just doesn't seem to be coming to pass. This kind of mission focus should actually sound familiar. Joseph is an archetype of Christ. He is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Joseph is a favored son, rejected by his brothers, and yet through faithfulness and suffering, ascends to the highest throne in the land. Joseph's life anticipates the Messiah's because God uses him to fulfill covenant promises and to undo the evil effects of the curse. It has to be said that Joseph suffered well. He seeks God's will in all circumstances. He listens for God at home, in Egypt, and even in prison. Then he follows with all his heart, and not halfway. Now I'll try this for a while and see if it works. He is a co-laborer with God. He is relentlessly focused. He seeks, he listens, and he acts. He does not passively wait for God to do something. 
He focuses on what he can do at the moment, and he does it with abandon. There's nothing passive about the way he keeps rising to the top, no matter how aggressively he's opposed. I want to make sure I'm clear. I'm not romanticizing suffering. Not all suffering is helpful or meaningful. Suffering well is not the same as suffering for a lack of God's sight or a lack of focus or a lack of obedience. Suffering is part of our world and is part of ministry. And as Bishop Stewart says, it's part of doing church. But it has to be admitted that some of us suffer for, for the wrong reasons. I know I have. This is not the kind of holy suffering that Jesus and St. Paul talk about. From personal experience, I can tell you that if you suffer, or if I, when I've suffered for insufficient planning, not managing my calendar, causing unnecessary turmoil, not paying attention, impatience or short-sightedness, these are connected to emotional immaturities and administrative deficiencies. When this happens to you, and when it happens to me, we must work to overcome them because this kind of chronic suffering, this kind of issue leads to chronic suffering and repeated disappointments. We should not romanticize them. That is not suffering for the gospel. It's like when I stand before the Choral Arts Society with a new piece and I'm not totally prepared. Nearly always I can point to a deficiency in myself that is connected to my preparation. That's the problem. I have to own this and I have to be honest about it. This is not suffering for the gospel. This kind of suffering is a result of an unregulated life and it needs to be repented of and worked on so that this immaturity does not keep interfering in God's call to us. It is the kind of thing that needs to be open to brotherly correction. The Bible says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. It also says, be ye doers and not just hearers. Again, Jesus and Joseph are two of our models. Suffering well is a sign of emotional maturity and spiritual maturity. We are called to work diligently with, with God to come to a place where they both intersect into God's sight. Our personal maturity that we develop through personal growth and our spiritual maturity that only comes by being with God and taking him in as our mentor. There are some uh, that we know in our lives who are so damaged by life that they walk around with their wounds wide open. They're easily offended. They see rejection around every corner. They're just not sure they can trust anyone. And so maybe they don't. Or they're so grandiose that they reject any criticism as suspect because they're so sure they're connected better than we are. These are all rooted in a lack of God's sight. We need to mature and develop our God's sight. He said you would be rejected. He said we would be rejected. But for our faith, not for our disorganization or not for our anxiety. For following Jesus, not for being rude or disconnected. In my early 20s, I knew God was calling me into ministry. I was pretty confident. People had been li had listening to me ever since I was a teenager. I also learned how to listen and watch from an early age. I found nearly everyone interesting, and I liked something about almost everyone I ever met, no matter how messed up their circumstances were. I have always had an absolutely incurable interest in people and a deep tolerance of oddities and peculiarities. I have to say that these qualities have given my life a very unique flavor. My aunt used to say to me, oh, you have such colorful friends. <laughs> I don't think that was a compliment. 
I realized early on that people love to be heard. And it lined up very conveniently with my insatiable curiosity. I really loved hearing people's stories, and their stories tend to stick with me. I may forget their name, but I'll never forget what they told me about their situation or some unique, unique issue. Again, I'd like to remind us, Jesus is our ultimate model for suffering well. He walked from town to town sharing the gospel, even though it was contrary to the way of the world and most of the religious authorities of the day. His message resonated with the poor and powerless and often confounded and infuriated the rich and powerful. The passion of Jesus from the garden to the cross is part of the model for how we suffer. He never forgot who he was. He never lost sight of his call. He never lost touch with the Father. He did not whine when people let him down, marginalized him, or betrayed him. And I want to go into this a little because it sounds kind of insipid connected to these other more kind of acceptable uh, understandings of who Jesus was because it's, it's really not small. It belies a condition of the heart. Uh, uh, scripture says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so we need to be careful because uh, sometimes I know it's very easy to spend entirely too much time complaining about others, judging their words, questioning their intentions, complaining about, of injury and a lack of respect. When Jesus is rejected, arrested, betrayed, and beaten and crucified, he never loses his identity. He suffers as the Son of God. We need to learn to suffer as God's children not as victims of bad juju or some karma thing, not as an underdog, but as God's child. And we also need to learn as part of maturity that when we suffer for our bad decisions, that we can accept our specific part in it. And I say specific to be very specific. Learn from it and then move on. It is not helpful to kind of say to ourselves, yeah, I'll fail and fall short, so there's no big deal. Let's just move forward and forget about it. No, we need to debrief what happened and, and debrief it with God, debrief, debrief it with our brothers and sisters. It is also where we learn, in this, in this exercise, it is also where we learn how to manage our shame and not let our shame manage us. Essentially, Jesus and apparently Joseph were not overly anxious about earthly things. They certainly had cause, but that's not the testimony of Scripture. They knew God, and it gave them a confidence to lead in 1 Peter we read, For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is another piece at the heart of suffering well. I'm going to ask my wife to come up and uh, share some testimony. That's you. Come on up. Wake up, Jane. <laughs> <laughs> While she's coming up, I just uh, introduced this, this section. How many of us have children, nieces, nephews, spouses, dear friends who are going off the rails? <laughs> I'm one of them. <laughs> I'm going to ask Jane Marie to come up and talk a little bit about a few minutes about a situation, or I shouldn't say, uh, a, a thing that, that her and I have been working with for years here. And uh, it's, uh, we have a grandson who is in a tough family situation on both sides of his family. And over the last probably, I don't know, 14 years of his 15 years of life, he's probably spent more time at our house than anywhere else. And we've really uh, spent a great deal of energy 
working with this young man. And so, uh, Jane, I'm gonna ask you a couple questions and just ask you to weigh in. We haven't rehearsed this, so. Uh, First of all, I would like to share that in about three days, at 3.30 in the morning, I will have the most eloquent answers to all of these questions. <laughs> <laughs> so bear with me. <laughs> all right, here we go. How would you describe your relationship to our grandson, Ty? I am his grandmother, which holds a, a special position in his life because as anyone who's ever had a grandmother, most grandmothers love unconditionally and passionately. But I'm also his mother and sometimes his father and his mentor and his supporter. Um, it's, it's a big, it's a big job, <laughs> but I wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, I'll tell you the precursor for Ty and I, I think some of you know this story. Um, we didn't know about Ty until after he was born and his mother suffers from mental illness and addiction. And I had heard stories about her before any of this happened. And when I found out who his mother was, my heart sank. But I thought, well, it could be okay. <laughs> and uh, Ty suffered very much, even from the time he was a baby. He was not cared for well. He was not nurtured. He was not supported. And I agonized over it. I prayed with some of our prayer ministers many times. And uh, I was worried about him all the time. It was awful. And one day I was sitting at my dressing table getting ready for work and I, in exasperation, said, Lord, you've got to send somebody to advocate for this child. And as clear as day, God said, I did. I sent you. <laughs> and God doesn't talk to me like that very often. Um, it, it just, it was, it, I can't even describe it. It sucked the air out of my lungs. Not, not in a terrible way, but it was like, <gasps> and here I am, 15, 14 years later. And um, so that's where we start with all of this. <laughs> so in light of all that, we're, we're really not his parents, but we are kind of his parents. We're certainly his mentors as well. Mm -hmm. We certainly are the ones kind of working to set a moral compass as he bounces from house to house. <clears throat> what do you see as kind of the unique challenges of raising Ty ongoing? What, what kind of challenges do you face? I think the most challenging thing is that he hears other life choices and other philosophies not Christian from his parents and It's hard for me, we've shared, we've shared a lot about the Lord and, and how things, we believe things should be to live a good life, to be saved, but it's hard sometimes to not, you can't, I think you can't be 
violently, openly, you know, <laughs> against it, because then that has the opposite effect. So, uh, kind of a fine line of support. You have to be, I think you have to be supportive rather than hard, hard line. So how has that, how has the word from God kind of affected how you operate day to day or how you see uh, this, this mission moving forward? Don't understand my question. So God said something to you. You're clear about God, how God said some, some, something to you. How does, that, how does that fix your resolve or how does that, do you go back to that now and again when, when things get tough? I go back to that a lot. I, I know that I could not have offered the support and the care and the love for Ty that I have. Sorry, that's me. I bet it's her phone. Um, could be Ty. I could not have done it alone. I, okay, thank you. I could not have done it alone. There's no way. Um, that support, knowing that I have God with me, mm -hmm. is what keeps me going. I'm going to ask you a really awkward question for both of us. Okay. Thank you, Jeannie. What, now you've committed to this. This is a word God shared with you. Yes. Um, how, how have you been able to hang on to that when there's been disagreement between us about how we should move forward? There have been some really tough times where it just, just looked like we just should give up. This is not working well. This is such a challenge. He's fighting back. His mom's fighting back. His dad's fighting back. It might be easier just to, just to let things take their course. How, how do you internally begin to reconcile that, especially if I begin to move towards that direction? I would say, and this is the, the only time in my life that I've had this kind of conviction, I would say it is made easier because it's my partner is God. Mm -hmm. So, and I talked to him about you. Thanks. <laughs> and and it, it, that helps because he does give me insights um, of what to say to you. And then there are times when I just know that what I'm doing is right and mm -hmm. it has to be done and it's not fun, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. I married a strong woman for sure. So even when I don't see what you see, your resolve seems to be pretty solid. Yes. <laughs> I don't know how else to say that. Thanks very much. Hang tight for, ju hang tight for just a minute. You know, part of the reason is that, you know, we all have these situations where we suffer, and suffering well is not just about toughing it out. Suffering well is, is working with God through these issues. It's bringing him into your life to be co-laborers, to work together. And often, even in a situation, I'll just, uh, uh, for a moment, uh, uh, sermonize, since that's, I've got the official role today to say that, that when this difficulty even comes between us and we don't have perfect agreement on how we should move forward, I have chosen, and sometimes it's frustrating, to believe that the word to Jane about Ty is the bottom line. 
I have to say to myself, look, I may have an insight here, I may think we need to do something this way, but I have to modify that by the word that my wife received. It's very important for the unity in our house. It's very important for God's will to be done in Ty's life. And uh, so this is one of the things that we make sure, that I make sure I try and listen to. And sometimes Jane helps me hear that when I'm not listening very well. So, what is it like when we're being asked to do something by God, and many of us have, and we stick to it whether we want to or not, whether it's convenient or not? Having God's sight when things are not going well is fundamental to our maturity, it's fundamental to retaining, maintaining relationships in hard times, and it's fundamental to our ministry. Jesus himself could have been mad at the Father for making his life so hard. He could have, but he didn't. Yet some of us do this all the time. Jesus could have said prior to the cross, this is a stiff-necked people. I'm so done with them. I just, I've had it. This is it. I'm not going any further. But it, actually, this kind of challenge did not change his love or his compassion or desire uh, to be with us, to, for us to be one with God, even as he and the Father are one. So Jane Marie, the last couple of quick questions. As a result of all the time we've invested and in, in, in you're following the word, what is your prayer for Ty now? My prayer for Ty is that he is able to have a personal relationship with, with Jesus and that that will be able to help him sustain a good and decent life mm -hmm. and that he grows into a loving, compassionate person. What do you actually see right now? <laughs> He's a teenager. No, no offense against any of you teenagers, but it's, it's a time in, in his life where he is not selfless, <laughs> um, and he struggles. He struggles to understand where his place is in the world. Mm -hmm. What are you willing to do to make your dream and God's word to you a reality? I'm willing to stick with him and to support him and cajole him. Um, <laughs> I have learned through prayer in this last year that I, I can't drag him. Um, he does have free will and he will make his choices. And I can't save him. <laughs> For a long time I tried to save him. I can't save him. I can support him and I can guide him, but I can't save him. So that was kind of a gift God gave me because <laughs> That's really the reality. And I always say something to Ty. I've said it for years, and this is the truth, and this is what God gave me. I always tell him, I will love you till the end of time. No matter where he goes, no matter what happens, I will love him till the end of time. And he takes comfort in that. And he knows where my love comes from. I've been, I've been very willing and open to share that that without the Lord, without Jesus, I am not who I am. I, I would not be the person I am. Mm -hmm. And so he has the comparison between his non-believing parents and his grandparents. It'll be his choice. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. See me a couple days, three in the morning. <laughs>
our last conversation this morning before I told before we talked about her coming up and talking she says I'll try not to have a stroke <laughs> as I said in my last sermon Paul and Silas sang hymns in prison they were suffering well when Peter was arrested same thing he was suffering well when Stephen was stoned he was suffering well when Joseph was sold into slavery he was suffering well when the Apostle John was on the island of Patmos in prison and wrote the book of Revelation, he was suffering well. When Paul was on the ship at, in the storm at sea, he was suffering well. Jesus suffered well, Joseph suffered well, Jane Maria suffering well, and some of you are suffering well. And as a result, many of our relationships are more mature, more godly, and more aligned with what God is desiring for all of us. As we suffer well in Christ, our relationships become more grounded as we pursue God's interest in them, for them and for us. Not our interest for what we can get. It is Trinitarian. I tied it in. It is Trinitarian. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran pastor in the underground church during World War II, suffered well right up to his execution. And the Lord revealed this word to him. He says... Jesus stands between us and God, and for that very reason, he stands between us and all other men and all things. He is the mediator, not only between God and man, but between man and man, and between man and reality. Since the whole world was created through him and unto him, he is the sole mediator in the world. When we suffer well, our core relationships correct for the better. Why? because Jesus is present in mediating. It is not always easier. It does not always feel nice. It may, not feel e it may feel easier to walk away or to write it off or to put folks outside of your circle or maybe even never to let them in in the first place. But God is good and God is faithful. In chapter 38 of Genesis, it says, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. That is our hope in taking the more challenging path. If we're listening, we will be on the path God is calling us to. It could be different than the path we want to be on or the one we want to take. Today, Jesus and Joseph are scriptural models for this. They, they and many others in scripture and in history. I encourage you to read about them. Seek out those who have suffered well among us in this congregation. Take ownership. We need to take ownership of our own maturity and responsibility and for the health of our relationships and the organizations we manage. As we have learned in our engaged groups, we are all works in progress. Even St. Paul says he is working out his salvation with fear and trembling. Related to this suffering, I would also like to make a point about pain, because pain and suffering go together like peas and carrots. This is the last point I'm going to make. They both have a purpose. It's important to remember that while suffering, we will likely feel pain. And pain can be intensely personal, but healing is almost always corporate. There's a lie in the world that when we're hurting, we need to be alone. Just go away and not let anybody see you. I used to hear this when I was a kid. If you're going to act like a baby, go to your room. I don't want to see you. It's a terrible way to live. Okay? We've learned now that we process some of our emotions in community. We process them properly with more people, people around us who are more mature. And so... Uh, I will never say this to my grandson. <laughs> it was not a good way to grow up. And I'm saying now that, that we need to be mature enough to be able to bear the emotions of the people around us and stay connected. 
realizing that it's Trinitarian. It's not just Rebecca and I having an argument or having a disagreement. God is there mediating. Jesus is there. Invite him in. The enemy has convinced most of us of a lie, and it is this, that when we hurt, we should be alone, alone to process, alone because we have been taught that it is impolite to show emotions around other people, alone because it is shameful to hurt so much in the presence of others. This is a sign of immaturity, not good health. We may need a time to gather ourselves, but isolation is not a cure for pain and suffering. We should be driven back to community. In fact, expecting others to leave our presence when they are emotional is a sign of our immaturity, not theirs, especially if they are children. I wish somebody had told me this when I was young. You cannot suffer well if you do not understand pain. And a comment about pain, author Peter Steinke says, pain is directional. It does not exist to create discomfort, but to demand a change in response to danger. So pain and anxiety are not meaningless, okay? And they're not to be dismissed or romanticized as a lack of faith or, or, or some kind of problem. Pain and anxiety have a purpose. They point back to the, what the real problem is. It's only when we lose sight of the fact that pain is pointing us to something that it becomes meaningless. And think of an illness for a moment. You suddenly have a pain in your arm and you brush it off. Men do this all the time. Not a big deal. I can handle this. A month later, the pain is still there and it doesn't go away. Aspirin stops working. Whatever you've done stops working. So you either take a little more aspirin or we adjust to the new reality. I guess my arm's just going to hurt from now on. That's not a big deal. I can do this. A year later, when the pain becomes unmanageable, we go to a doctor who says, why didn't you come in earlier? It's bone cancer and it's spread through your whole body. Pain is not meaningless. It's designed to point us to danger that can be more destructive than the pain itself. Pain is a sign and a symptom. It's not the problem itself. Suffering well involves a maturity to say, what is the pain pointing towards and how can I address the cause of it so that not only the pain goes away, but the true cause of the pain is also addressed. If you break your arm, you can clearly take enough pain pills to alleviate the pain. But if you do not set the arm and you do not address the problem, pain loses its purpose. When we are suffering for the gospel, the only cure is Jesus. It is following his call to you fully without looking back. I'll just say this, take heart. We tend not to trust what is difficult. We tend to look for quick fixes. Trust that the Lord is with you no matter how challenging it gets. He is always there. Trust the community to share with you in that pain. Scripture says that we're called to bear each other's burdens in Galatians. Part of the joy of being in a community is that we have the opportunity to minister to each other, to pray for each other, and to help each other. We do this in general, and we do this in specific. Suffering well is a key to success in life. It's a key to being present to God all the time. Scripture says, for you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to also suffer for his sake. This is the biblical testimony. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.